Welcome to Discover Healthier. Everything you need to know about health brought to you by Discovery Health. I'm Azania Mosaka. You can join the conversation as we explore some of the most pressing matters in the healthcare environment today. Our wide variety of topics and specialist guests will empower you to care for your health now and in the future. Heart disease is deadly. While most of us know that an unhealthy lifestyle can cause high cholesterol or high blood pressure, how well do we understand the real consequences of these conditions like heart attacks or strokes? And what can you do to prevent heart disease entirely? And should you be at risk, what are the early warning signs? If you are diagnosed, what is actually the best possible approach to your care? To guide us through this conversation, to help us understand heart disease a lot better, I've invited Dr. Ngoba Chabeza, who is an academic head of cardiology at WITS and also clinical head of cardiology at Charlotte Matleke. And joining us is Dr. Noltando Nemachwerani, and she's the head of clinical policy at Discovery Health. A warm welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. This is a big conversation. Heart disease is very broad. And so I'm hoping that we'll be able to touch on the most critical aspects of the condition. But in a nutshell, what is heart disease? Thanks, Zanya. Heart disease is quite broad and it's really a conglomeration of medical conditions that ultimately culminate in uh, probably three principal prototype presentations where either you will complicate with stroke, heart attacks, or peripheral vascular disease. Mm -hmm. And there are key risk factors that are drivers of this entity, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and these are all conglomerated around metabolic syndrome and phenotype, also associated with diabetes. But the most common entity that at least we have data on is ischemic heart disease itself Mm -hmm. because often patients who complicate with stroke either die at the same time of event or are significantly affected in terms of functionality. And hence, we hardly get to hear their stories and exactly what happened. But those with heart attacks generally live to tell their story. Right. And is this true or not, that once you have a heart attack or an episode, that it's likely to happen again? In the acute setting, yes, you're still at risk. But what simply it means is that you're at risk Mm -hmm. and one needs to modify the risk factors. So as I mentioned earlier, hypertension, high cholesterol, stress environment, lack of exercise, eating unhealthily, poor sleep patterns, Mm. etc. All of these work together synergistically to ultimately culminate with having an event. So if you've had one, you're most likely at high risk and one needs to manage the risk to control that. But I want to go back to what you've just mentioned now, some of the contributing factors. Let's also loosely define hypertension. What is happening within the body when we say we have high blood pressure? So high blood pressure simply means that the pressure within your arterial network. Mm -hmm. So the body is a network of tubes of which the heart is the center. The heart pumps and ejects oxygenated blood with nutrients to the rest of the body. And these vessels are called arteries and they carry this very precious blood to the rest of the organs of the body. And what happens is in the process of atherosclerosis, we get a buildup of dirt or what we call plaque 
which is accelerated again by hypertension, smoking, high cholesterol levels. And this plaque ultimately closes or occludes these vessels. And then one manifests with either a stroke, a heart attack, or a blocked artery that supplies legs to the lower limbs with peripheral vascular disease. So in a nutshell, that's really the mechanism or the drivers of atherosclerotic cardiovascular diseases. So if I'm in a layman kind of way of explaining it, as you said, we have this tube, but then at some point in the tube, there's this buildup that causes a narrowing in certain parts. Therefore, the blood cannot flow the way it's accustomed to flowing, yes. which places a lot of pressure, even more pressure and a yes. deterioration. Okay, so high blood pressure comes in two forms. You have essential hypertension. So naturally, as you get older, the blood vessels that carry blood become harder, less compliant. So as your heart pumps blood, your blood vessels are elastic and they can accommodate and are able to compensate for the ejected blood. Mm. But as you get older, they fail to do so. And hence your blood pressure goes high because they're less compliant. So it's like a balloon. Imagine when you blow a balloon, the balloon can take the air. It just expands and the pressure inside the balloon remains constant. But if it was harder and you force into that balloon, the pressure goes higher and higher. And that's what then for hypertension specifically will cause retinopathy, renal dysfunction, and also accelerated atherosclerosis, Hmm. which is the plaque buildup in your middle-sized arteries. It's also fascinating. But if we stay with cholesterol, cholesterol is often quite confusing because there's good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, but even bad cholesterol can be good for you. You know, so it can be quite a maze. Can you just explain cholesterol in relation to heart disease? So broadly, we've got good lipids and bad lipids. So people generally will say, ah, it's fat, it's bad, stay away from it. But you've got certain fats which are usually polyunsaturated, and those are your plant-based oils, such as olive oil, avocado oil, etc., coconut oil. And these are polyunsaturated. These are healthy. And in fact, the body uses these for maintaining its own homeostasis and repairing itself accordingly. Then you've got other fats which are bad fats. And these are generally animal fats that you find in your red meats, etc., processed meats, etc. So that trim on your skin. Yes, yes. yes. And those are polysaturated fats. And those are the ones that accelerate the blockage of your arteries, which then leads to the manifestation of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which can present, as I said earlier, as a stroke, a heart attack or peripheral vascular disease. Right. I'm hoping that we've done justice to understanding what is happening in the body. But who's most at risk in our society? So the people who are at risk are those people who don't exercise, who don't look after themselves in terms of their diet. When we consider, you know, hypertension, specifically focusing on the diet itself, we talk about people who are consuming diets that are high in salt content and also high in saturated fats. So if you eat a lot of red meat, then your risk of cardiovascular disease is increased. Mm. But we also look at body mass index, which is obviously your weight versus height. And we know that a healthy BMI, which is a body mass index, should be below 25 kilograms per meter squared. Mm -hmm. So we always say once you get to the overweight, range, your risk for cardiovascular disease increases, which is why we always encourage people to screen. So you screen for blood pressure, you screen for BMI, which is a weight indicator. And I think, I mean, um, Dr. Tabedze can also even attest to the fact that we also consider abdominal fat. So there are certain people who may look relatively skinny, I think. 
where you are, you know, thin on the outside, but fat in the inside. And the visceral fat is actually a very bad risk factor in terms of cardiovascular disease. Mm. So we really encourage people to to exercise because it actually makes your vessels quite healthy, considering, you know, the pathophysiology that has been mentioned by the cardiologist around how you develop heart disease. Yes. Historically, we've associated heart disease with older males. Does this remain true? What have we learned in recent decades about who's also susceptible? The epidemiology has changed Mm. dramatically. More than 30, 40 years ago, this condition was rarely seen in black patients. In fact, it was at some point in the history they thought it was predominantly for Caucasians and Indians. And currently in our practice at the Charlotte Macheke Academic Hospital Cardiology Unit, we are now seeing young black patients as young as 30 presenting with heart attacks, Mm. acute coronary syndromes that we have to take to cath lab to treat. So I think with the urbanization and westernization that has occurred, largely we've changed the way we live, we've changed the way we eat. We're very much a sedentary society and community. And with food security, especially the easy access to fast foods, which becomes very convenient in an urban setting, we indulge in those foods. And uh, naturally, the risk factors associated with cardiovascular disease increase. And we have high prevalence of obesity, high prevalence of hypertension, even in the young. So it's definitely not a disease of the elderly as what we traditionally thought of it to be. What's also interesting is if you look at a comparison of data from Europe and America to sub-Saharan Africa, we realize that, for example, hypertension, it's still very much a disease that we see largely in 60, 70 plus year olds in Europe and America. Mm. However, in South Africa, the average age is still in the 40s, where we find majority of our patients presenting with already hypertension with asymptomatic target organ damage, such as retinopathy or proteinuria or left ventricular hypertrophy on You are going to have to give us different meanings to those medical terms. (laughs) So eye complications, complications. kidney complications. (laughs) So so it's not failure. It's not failure, but it's just markers of injury. Right. That there is some harm that is occurring to the eye, to the kidney, to the heart caused by this hypertension. Because remember, for example, hypertension, it's asymptomatic. So patients, they wouldn't know that I actually have high blood pressure unless they screen. So again, attesting to what Dr. Noltandas is saying that patients need to screen. So what are the warning signs then? Or what do we do? And what are we looking out for? I think for very long, I mean, uh, hypertension has been known as a silent killer, you know, because of the fact that you do not get symptoms. There are some patients who may present with some symptoms that are vague and non-specific, but obviously the screening component is very important. If we look at hypertension, we always say anyone over the age of 18 should at least have their blood pressure checked every once in a while based on the findings. So if let's say the blood pressure is borderline abnormal, then they will be given some form of educational material in terms of what they must change. Because some of these, because they are risk factors also, if you change your diet, you improve your exercise uh, routine, mm. you may actually reverse some of these. So I think for us, what we are really encouraging people to, to do is to go and screen because you may be really asymptomatic and feel nothing yes. until that day when you've got a stroke. And I mean, we've seen patients who are coming through already with a complication mm-hmm. and they were not aware that they had an underlying condition all along. Sure. Those are the signs of hypertension, but 
how do I know I'm having a heart attack? Okay, so similarly with the heart attack, what happens is often you'll have, in the acute setting, depending on the presentation, you'll have severe chest pain that will be central in nature. It's usually associated with a feeling of nausea, sweating a lot, and it's a crushing pain. So it's not really sharp, like someone is stabbing you. Mm. It's almost like there's a truck sitting on your chest and there's a sense of impending death, like I'm dying. And that's what it feels like when you actually have an acute myocardial infarct or a heart attack. That means your arteries supplying the muscles of the heart are blocked Mm. and you need to try to restore that flow. So what we normally recommend is immediately if you have those symptoms, don't ignore it. It's not heartburn, which often most people think it is. You need to take a disparin immediately and chew on it just to accelerate or improve the absorption to try and improve. Oh, so that doesn't make the blood thinner. It improves absorption. No, chewing the the disparin tablet. improves the tablet, improves the absorption rather than you swallowing it. Right. And then the tablet's role is to thin or prevent platelet clotting. So mm-hmm. in your blood vessels, there are certain cells that normally when there's a ruptured plaque or this atheroma that I talked about that blocks the artery. What happens is this plaque grows and grows until it reaches a critical stage where it complicates and it usually breaks up, it opens up. And then all this cholesterol, particles, debris that's inside gets exposed to the blood. So the blood wants to heal and it basically conglomerates at that site. And in so doing, it forms a clot and it actually blocks flow. And that's when you get the heart attack. So by chewing the disparin or aspirin, you're helping to have quick rapid absorption. So you have a quick effect that restores that flow to that artery and hence you abort the heart attack that you were busy having. Yes, yes. Maybe it gets you enough time to get to the hospital yes. or to contact emergency mm. services. Yes. So th- those are the warning signs. And are they the same in women? So in women, what's unique about them is that sometimes they can be very nonspecific, mm-hmm. you know. So they would complain of similar pains. And in some women who come with angina symptoms, so that's when, for example, you have a narrowing over time of the blood vessel and whenever you exert yourself, maybe you're running, you're jogging, or maybe you're angry, you know, you're upset with your uh, child or so you're driving on the road and immediately you get this chest pain. So in women, sometimes they have that and it may not necessarily mean that it's blocked arteries. It could also be from spasm, but nevertheless, it's a warning sign. Don't ignore it. Do get checked out and be screened. And importantly, in the elderly And in diabetic patients, they can have silent heart attacks. So you may not even experience the pain. All you will know is a sense of not feeling well. You're nauseous. You feel like vomiting. You're sweating a lot. You think maybe it's food poisoning. Meanwhile, you're having a heart attack. So one shouldn't ignore these symptoms of this feeling of being unwell. Exactly, especially because that's how the body warns you that I'm not well. Yes, wow. Exercise has come up. So how does exercise improve or rather mitigate the risks of a heart attack? So I think exercise does it in in various ways. Firstly, I mean, if you exercise, you are most likely to be within your normal weight because you're going to lose weight. It also, I mean, is is good for healthy blood flow. Mm -hmm. So it improves blood flow and therefore you get healthier arteries, which are good in terms of cardiovascular health. So I think that's why we encourage people to exercise a lot because it's really just good. And I mean, your heart is a muscle. It then exercises, you know, and you get good vascular, um, you know, flow because of exercise. 
Just to add that an observation which some of the data that's out uh, shows is that people who generally exercise and are very conscientious about their weight and their health, it's almost like a lifestyle mental awareness switch that's on. Mm. So they're very conscious about what they're eating, when they're eating it, how much they're eating. And so it, it actually promotes one to live a, a certain lifestyle yes. that promotes cardiovascular health. So it's definitely a good thing to do for one to follow. Yes. And then when we look at our numbers, what does that say about how hard the heart is working? When we have exercise, does it improve our hypertensive numbers? Yes. So exercise can lower your blood pressure mm-hmm. because it from the improved vascular health yes from as a result from the chronic sustained exercise so again what we normally prescribe is that at least 3 times a week minimum 30 minutes of exercise you must at least develop a sweat or get your heart rate up mm. so it's not just a casual walk down the street mm-hmm. it has to be something that gives you a sweat and you get a tachycardia which is a good tachycardia. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about exercise. And then because of the improved vascular health, your blood pressure does come down. And also your muscles, including your heart, they utilize the free fatty acids for energy. So that also improves your cholesterol profile. And if you're diabetic, you're now decreasing your storage, glycogen or sugar stores in your body, um, which also improves your glycemic control. So definitely exercise is an important one. And especially for the type 2 diabetics and patients with metabolic phenotypes. So if you're overweight, hypertensive, central obesity, diabetic, that's probably the best pill. The question of diet and what we eat, how much of a factor does that play? How much of a role does it have on the risk of cardiovascular disease? I mean, we know that unhealthy eating contributes to obesity. I mean, we are an obese nation, as it is, and it's because of the consumption of the unhealthy foods. And I think there is a requirement for us to have messaging that is very clear to patients and to the broader society because I think there is a lot of confusing messaging around diet. Mm. And I think for me, what is important is also to package those messages, understanding the context. Because if I'm in a township and I've got access to specific types of food, I must package the messaging so that it makes sense to you. I can't be telling you about quinoa when you don't even know what that is. So it must be about if you eat pap, I must tell you, how the portion size matters. So mm. it's not about what you are eating, but how much you are eating. Yes, and as a carbohydrate, as a carbohydrate, what kind yes. of impact that has on definitely, your overall health. Definitely, and I think the other important thing that we were just sharing about is about access to fast foods and the fact that it is seen as having arrived <laughs> in, our, mm. in our setting where people, if they've got access to specific fast foods, they believe that, you know, I have arrived, I, I'm doing well. Mm. And I think, sadly, what we we see is that sometimes obesity is not the disease of the very rich or the very poor. It is the people that are just affording to get access to some of these things. Most South Africans eat a diet high in processed meat, salt, sugars, deep fried foods, Hmm. refined starches, and they don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. And what's ironic is traditionally, if you go to a rural setup, Somehow they had it right. You know, they ate a lot of vegetables. The carbohydrates they ate were high in fiber content, be it homemade bread or mealy meal, etc. You know, having access to fruits and having your own uh, vegetable patch, which nourish them appropriately. But now somehow we now in an urbanized area, 
we have to now pursue that, which often is very costly mm. now to afford. But it's what traditionally or long ago used to be the standard. Yes. You know, so we have definitely mixed up our priorities and the insight as to what's good, healthy food has been lost in translation. Even for our children, you know, majority of the time, if you go to informal settlements, you'll find that they have, I guess it's synonymous to a Big Mac where they'll have a certain mini loaf stuffed with mm. all sorts of goodies, mm. uh, a poloni, fried egg, cheese, mm. archer, etc. And that's what people eat regularly. Yeah. You know, that's my lunch for day in and day out for a whole month yeah. or a school term. Again, if I afford this, I'm perceived as someone who's doing well compared to the child who comes to school with a peanut butter sandwich or something yes. like that mm. who carries lunch to school, which often would be healthier option compared to buying this uh, readily accessible fast food. So definitely there has to be a lot of education, I think, to parents as well as in young adults mm. to actually understand what is healthy and what is not healthy. And I think most of the damage is usually done in childhood these days because we're seeing a lot of obese kids because of what their parents are packing. And it becomes a lifestyle that they're used to. Because, yeah, because that's what is packed for me at home. This is what we eat at home. And because the parents are working long hours, they're not there to cook healthy meals. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening that is actually going to contribute to long-term cardiovascular risk if we do not change the way our relationship with food and how we access food right now. So help me in understanding how prevalent heart disease is, both locally and internationally. Are we seeing an increase of this illness in terms of the stats? Yes. So globally, World Health Organization predicts currently ischemic heart disease to be exact, so heart attacks, number one killer worldwide. And it's predicted to, to remain in the number one spot till 2030 and beyond. And with increasing life expectancy, as you get old. So that's another element I'd like to introduce now. So atherosclerosis or the blockage of your arteries is also a natural process as you get older. But what happens is when you are diabetic, you're hypertensive, you're smoking, you eat bad fats, that process is accelerated. And right. hence you get heart attacks at a young age we and bring strokes. It forward. Mm. Yes. Mm. But naturally as you get older, you can, even though you run Comrades Marathon, you can suddenly succumb to such an event, you know, which is part of a natural aging process, okay. right? So in the West, because you, had, you generally have an, a high life expectancy, most of the people will succumb or die from ischemic heart disease. Mm -hmm. But what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa or the developing world, where traditionally we've had a high burden of infectious diseases, there's now a change or a shift whereby the non-communicable diseases, also driven by largely heart diseases, driven by poor lifestyle and the other risk factors we've talked, we've talked about, there's now an emerging increased risk of cardiovascular disease. In fact, in 2017, 2018, Stats SA reported that for the first time, non-communicable diseases were responsible for more deaths in South Africa than infectious diseases. Now, infectious diseases, remember, are huge in our setting. Yes. Mm. We're talking about HIV, we're talking about tuberculosis, mm. malaria, pneumonias, diarrheal illnesses, etc. So this is a very pivotal moment where suddenly our very strained health system, you know, uh, nationally, 
and regionally is now needing to contend with both non-communicable diseases as well as the high infectious disease burden. What so, a it's, so it's very, very uh, significant. Yes. And we were almost geared and ready for infectious diseases such as HIV, TB. You've got so many programs, a lot of state-driven awareness programs. And then there was an increase uh, in priorities. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a high. And also civil society was very much involved, such as the treatment action campaign. And uh, in that phase or, or drive, we somehow lost the pulse on mm. non-communicable diseases mm. and mm. now we have to play catch up right. because suddenly even in South Africa as much as our economy may not be that great but generally food security is improving the middle class is growing and we're all becoming more and more urbanized mm. and now we have to contend and deal with these diseases which yes. traditionally we were not even aware of. So Dr. Noltando, what do we see as far as Discovery Health members are concerned. You have the Discovery Health claims tracker that gives great insights. Is this mirrored? Definitely. So if we look at our top, in the top three, in fact, top two conditions by prevalence and incidence, it's hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. Mm -hmm. So high cholesterol and hypertension. And if we've got those two, just understand that they are important risk factors for, you know, downstream costs related to cardiac failure, ischemic heart disease, and other related complications that come from that. Yes. And I think for me, we need to emphasize the fact that these are preventable. So these conditions, it's not like we can't do anything about it. So there are specific risk factors that can be modified and we can actually prevent most of what we see. So if we look specifically, I mean, when there are slight differences between the data that we see for males and females. So in the top three, mm. the hypertension and hypercholesterolemia are there for both males and females. But then you see that in the top five, we get ischemic heart disease for men, which obviously is what, you know, the data always shows that. Yes. Men have got a higher risk of heart attacks, even though we know that women are catching up because of our obesity incidence in South Africa. Hmm. So our numbers are really showing that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And I guess that's why we see the creation of Discovery Health Cardio Care to respond to precisely these numbers. What is it involved? What kind of ecosystem has Discovery developed to help support members who have heart disease? I think just looking back at where we're coming from, I think as a funder, we've had HIV care for a very long time. And I think it talks to our focus on infectious diseases for a very long time until we realized that our the non-communicable disease burden is actually growing. And we started putting together, you know, programs like the diabetes care. So recently, we've also put together cardio care, which we launched last this year, where we are encouraging members firstly to screen and then transition because The conditions that I've mentioned are prescribed minimum benefits. So there are existing benefits for members in terms of monitoring their conditions. Mm. And also we... Within that program, we encourage certain behaviors like increase in physical activity, you know, dietary control in terms of those patients who are either diagnosed or are at risk of a diagnosis that could be cardiac in nature. So our, our process is really supporting members with the screening, making sure that if you are at risk, then you are transitioned to specific vitality-related programs. And also, if you have got a diagnosis, then we transition you to our chronic illness benefit, which 
opens up a basket of care for consults with your doctor, mm-hmm. for routine screening, for specific blood tests that need to be done. If you need to go and have a chest x-ray done, an ECG, which is an echocardiogram, which is an x-ray of your heart, and also, you know, an, a sonar of the heart by a cardiologist. So yes. all that stuff is part of what would be offered. And what we've also created as part of our chronic disease management programs is really a network of, of GPs who are, you know, going to be the ones who are really the primary physicians that are coordinating care mm. for the patient who is stable, mm. but for those patients who require onward referral, within the baskets of care, we've got, you know, specialist visits that are allocated for, for, for those patients. Yes. And then there's the component then for those patients who are also diagnosed in terms of accessing their medication. So we make it easy for patients to get their chronic medication through our MedExpress partner, where there are specific pharmacies that are participating in those particular program where patients can get reduction in co-payments because we've got a medicine formulary mm-hmm. that they can have access to. They can, you know, manage their condition in an easy, affordable manner and, you know, get their desired outcomes in terms of reduction in heart attacks and hospitalizations related to to heart disease. We did talk about the fact that this is reversible, but that would involve committing and setting goals. Yes, yes. yes. Are we seeing compliance? Are we seeing enough of behavior change when we're confronted with the diagnosis of heart disease? For some patients, you find that uh, some of the events, so you had a, you have a heart attack, let's say you were a blue status a vitality member. Yes. And that life-changing experience actually pushes you to gold because now you want to prevent another heart attack. Mm. So there are some patients where you actually see that once they've had an event that is life, <laughs> you know, threatening, yes. um, you find that there is a change in how they start looking after themselves. I think for us, really, the bulk of where we want to focus is where patients have not actually had an event where we're saying we already know which is why we really really work so hard to encourage members through our vitality program in terms of points allocation if you look at our vitality health check it actually comprises of blood pressure checks bmi checks cholesterol checks and checks for diabetes if you look at all four components that we're addressing there they all contribute to prevention of heart disease because we know that if you are diabetic, I think we discussed diabetes, if you are diabetic, you are more likely to have cardiac-related complications. And I think Dr. Sabeze highlighted that you can even have a silent heart attack, which, which can actually be fatal for some of these patients. So if you look at that whole program, it is really geared to making sure that we get our patients to a level where they understand what their risk factors are. And we have designed programs within Vitality. Yeah. And we've also supported them with benefits once they are diagnosed. So if you look at the Vitality program, you know, reaching your weight goal, where you get specific points for reaching a specific Mm -hmm. goal weight. And also, I mean, with the Vitality Active Rewards, where patients, you know, are encouraged to reach specific goals through exercise, you know, pacing yourself because we're not at the same level. You may be just starting. So you set a specific goal mm. and you get rewarded mm. as you reach your goal. So I think and we are all doing those annual screenings. Yes, that obviously yes, will yes, indicate no, definitely. And, go a long and I way. think we layer the rewards to say once you have done the right thing for yourself, 
we are still going to reward you because we understand that it's quite a, a, a challenging thing to stick to that routine because the gains may not be immediate, but we know that you are actually almost depositing, yes. you know, uh, for Credits. future. It's uh, credit. They say that the future you will thank you. Certainly. Absolutely. But Dr. Chabaz, as a cardiologist, you're in that moment. There's the diagnosis. You've, you're talking to your patient. You're expressing to them how desperate the prognosis is, how serious it is. And there obviously has to be a change. They have to bring about a change. Talk to me about the mental hurdles, some of the things that have to shift within a patient in order for them to potentially reverse this and or rather manage this condition. So the first thing is most patients need to understand that we're treating or addressing cardiovascular risk. So this is a very abstract concept. You know, they know they've had a heart attack and they don't understand, okay, I'm having a heart attack. They may not see the link in terms of hypertension, this thing called cholesterol, the doctor's measuring my stress levels, smoking, yes, they can attribute directly, maybe the alcohol intake as well that they have, as well as the diet, you know, the excessive red meat that they have. So one needs to almost make this something that the patient can appreciate that I have control. This is something that has happened to me and I can mitigate this risk, I can reduce it and I can prevent this from happening again. And then unfortunately, they have to take ownership and, you know, responsibility for their health. Because it's easy to indulge and do all these seemingly benign activities and lifestyle activities. But when the consequences come, they're very grave. And here it's your life that's at stake. So often we struggle. Some of the conditions like smoking, it's obviously addictive. Patients battle with that. They may need support and sometimes even therapy to try to help them to wean them off that. The lipid control, it's the, probably the easiest one. We now have an, a myriad of tablets or medications that one can treat, as well as hypertension. And often these are also actively managed because one needs to get to a certain target in order to mitigate the risk. So both physician and patient need to know what that target is, similarly for diabetes as well. And when we attain that target, then we have really made a significant impact for the patient and preventing them from having an event. And because there's, not, there's nothing such as a pain or a cough or a headache that they feel, it's hard to keep them motivated. But they just have to understand, as I said, the initial issue is understanding what cardiovascular risk is right. and how to mitigate that. So really, my outlook, it's very doom and gloom. It's going to get worse before we get better. We thought we'd get you in for a message of hope yeah, but and positivity. It, it is positivity, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right. Simply because we're not doing enough. Yeah. You know, a lot of people out there, like this message, it's something they probably have never heard of. And it's contrary to what they believe and really think. And so, unfortunately, we will get the increase where people will have, and we're seeing it already, where young people are having MIs, succumbing to strokes, and until we come up and probably will need, again, a civil society champion that will come out to really push the message so hmm. people can say, whoa, we are dying. We are dying. And this is something we can prevent. Right. You know, 80% of cardiovascular diseases in people under 70 years of age are preventable. 
I was just kidding. We actually did want a reality check. And boy, did you serve <laughs> up a reality check. <laughs> you certainly did. Straight from the cardiologist's mouth. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Who's going to ignore that? Wow. So it is preventable. We've got mixed priorities. We need to reprioritize and get our health back on track. Dr. Chabetze, thank you so much. And also to you, Dr. Nimachurani. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Our choices clearly affect how healthy we can be. I spoke to Jane Ball, a behavioral scientist and head of population health management at Discovery Health, about strategies on a change in behavior and how these can prevent and help manage heart disease. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in an effort to kind of address behavioral risk factors, which contribute quite significantly to uh, the global burden of disease, there's been this growing movement over the years in public health towards the use of interventions that are informed by behavioral science. So help us understand what behavioral science brings to this conversation. Behavioral science is really the understanding of both psychology and also economics and that interface and trying to be able to understand why people behave the way that they do and also predict the way that they're likely to behave in the future. And then the last part is understanding that, being able to put interventions in place that help people follow through on things that they themselves would like to do or in their best interests. So do we have a better sense of what informs why we do what we do? Certainly we do, and I think in healthcare there are quite a number of different factors, but probably one of the most important things is that we are present biased. So what happens today weighs far more heavily than what happens tomorrow or in the future, and that really influences the choices that I might make and how I will behave and how I think I'm going to behave in the future, and that changes as the future becomes today. So, for example, if I was offered 100 rand today or 120 rand tomorrow, most people will choose the 100 rand today. Mm-hmm. But if you offered me 100 rand in a month's time or 120 rand in a month and one day's time, most people take the 120 rand. And that's because the future is very sharply discounted relative to the present. Right. So when we say future you will thank you, <laughs> that is what we need to bear in mind all the time about the choices we make today. Exactly. And also what we do today, I mean, if we have to defer doing something, there's a cost today to actually have good health in the future. So I might have to give up that dessert today to have a healthy weight in the future. And it's that trade-off knowing that actually what happens today is more important to me. Right. So I guess that explains then why we fail to implement lifestyle habits that we need to implement for better health. It is hard because that immediate cost And it's also that the future, I mean, when we talk about health, it's a relatively abstract concept. And Mm. so often for people, it's quite hard to make that very related to themselves and really understand what that means. So abstract concepts have high value, but they're also quite psychologically distant, which makes us more prone to procrastinate when it comes to those sort of concepts. Have we come to understand why they are more difficult in other people than in some? Because there are people who do what they intend to do. Their actions speak to the intention that they have. And then you find some of us who have a wider gap when it comes to what our intentions are and what our actions are. Do we know what sets these individuals apart? 
I don't think we really know what sets them apart. What we do know are things that we can do, though, to try and increase the likelihood of doing what we want to do. And maybe they're just inherently better at doing those things. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we plan well, we are more likely to follow through than if we say we want to do something but have no plan at all. So, if I've thought about what I'm going to do in a situation when it arises and I've already got a plan in action, I'm far more likely to follow through than if I just wait for that situation to happen and then have to make a decision on how I'm going to act. So maybe a good example would be if I've thought about the fact that I'm wanting to eat more healthily and I think I'm going to a restaurant with my friends tomorrow night, when the waiter or waitress asks me if I'd like the dessert menu, I will say, I'll just have a coffee. Thank you. By doing that, I've already decided how I'm going to act it's already linked to that situational cue. And when it happens, I can automatically respond without having to use any sort of thinking or considering in the moment what I want to do. Mm, That's a fantastic example. So we then set ourselves up for greater success if we plan. What else can we do, especially pertaining to a condition like heart disease? There's hypertension, which is a silent killer that warning sign that you could in fact suffer from heart disease at a later stage. So are there things that we can do in order to prevent heart disease? I think definitely lifestyle is a major contributor. So if we can make sure that we're eating healthily, staying active, actually just looking after ourselves physically, then we Mm -hmm. definitely reduce those risk factors. So planning and being quite deliberate about the things that we do today. How do I make sure that I've planned for the way I'm going to eat, that I've planned for when I will exercise or being active would certainly help. And the other thing we know is that reducing the immediate cost is really helpful. And one Mm -hmm. way that people can do that is by participating in programs like Vitality Active Rewards, because Mm -hmm. there you get short-term rewards for having the right lifestyle behaviors. So that reduces the immediate cost makes it more pleasant for me in the short term and then helps me to achieve those long-term sort of health goals. Yes, because health agencies have been criticized for sort of underutilizing the behavioral science with their emphasis on behavioral factors in disease. And when you look at the interdisciplinary approach to disease prevention that is necessary, we do then need to extend ourselves to other disciplines beyond the regimented ways that we've had of preventing disease. I think so. And I think the other important factor is that people are far more likely to follow through on their actions if they feel that they themselves are in control. So they talk about that idea of autonomy. So having someone else like a doctor or some other healthcare worker tell me what I should do means I'm less likely to follow through than if you actually ask me what are my health goals and help Hmm. me overcome the barriers to then achieve that. So I think that's very important. I think sometimes in the healthcare environment, It's very much about having that knowledge and wanting to tell someone else how they should act. But really important is that they themselves subscribe to that sort of goal and that together you then create some sort of plan to achieve the goal. And once a diagnosis has been made or if we suffer an episode, this is where we would hope there's a turning point. But even with the grave diagnosis, in some cases we don't see a change in behavior. What are the drivers behind that? So luckily, often a major event is a trigger for people to change Mm -hmm. their behavior. So we do know that in some people that really has a positive impact. Even things Mm -hmm. like just your birthday or other key dates can be enough to to trigger a change in behavior. And so it's great to link 
a message with a sort of key event or date. But for other people, I think sometimes it just comes down to self-efficacy or the confidence knowing what to do. So sometimes I might know what I need to do, but I may not feel I'm capable myself. And having that support system to then help me know or learn how to be competent would also help in those situations. And I want to bring it back to vitality after what you've said. So being empowered, then you see the reward, you are put within a program that is fairly structured. You're empowered then to take your health into your own hands and do better. That's true. And what's really great is we're now rolling Vitality Active Rewards out specifically for people with heart disease. And in that, we actually have a structure where we can help remind people about certain key health checks that they need to have done or also remind them about taking their medicine regularly. So really through that structure, trying to create that support so people have that confidence or know what they need to do next. What is the role of social stresses and other social factors if we step out of the individual that can hamper our progress? I think social stresses can be huge because we have so many different things that are competing for our priorities. While it might be really important to stay healthy, there are a whole lot of other priorities that also need my attention and they need my finances and they need my cognitive and physical effort. So the fact that I also have work demands home life demands, the fact that I also need to try and fit in all my admin work, all competes for my same resources. And that's often why people struggle to follow through on these health actions. So it's not just about the confidence and it being what I've chosen to do, but how do I get that prioritized amongst all my other competing priorities? Thank you so much, Jane. What's clear is that heart disease is a matter of life and death. And it's safe to say education on what is best for our heart health is necessary. In this regard, a back-to-basics approach is all it takes. What we eat, what our children eat from a young age, screening for risks such as high blood pressure and high cholesterol and staying active. Here's to good heart health. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Healthier, brought to you by Discovery Health. Join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Discover Healthier and tag at Discovery underscore essay. You can subscribe to our podcast channel, Discovery South Africa, on your favorite podcast app or visit discovery.co.za to listen to our shows. 